welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amberula for your mind. I am half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser, coming to you from rainy Joburg. Yes, from rainy Joburg. It's delicious, and man. The spring it is, is sprung it's, it's and quite, it's so gloomy. It's quite lovely. Uh, and and it's, ref, so it's, it's respite from the horrors of uh, the horrible hot days of spring, which are some of my least favorite days of the year because it is simultaneously dry and hot and polleny. Um, all of which are things that I'm not. Polony, sneezy, of. delicious, and then everyone thinks they've got COVID again because they're sneezing. <laughs> Dude, I'm so delighted. I had two plants on my balcony. One was a marijuana plant given to me by a friend. Sad story. Mm -hmm. uh, he's uh, he's a really good guy. He's a lawyer. He's been working with some marijuana dudes. Uh, he's been giving me some interesting case information. And one of the cases that he was working on, you know, these are people who, who, who are trying to find how to work within the legal system that we have and also right. trying to see how that can be pushed uh, through court action and so on. Anyway, there was this great sort of marijuana farmer who passed away and the whole business kind of then fell apart because it was a bit of a one-man show. But they had these amazing plants that had like deep purple black buds. Uh, and so my mate gave me one of these in a, in a nice little setup. And that was art, as was the a Bogan Villa. And the Bogan Villa was dying and the marijuana was doing very well. Uh, but then I didn't harvest all the marijuana in time because I'm – I don't actually smoke a lot or have a lot of interest in it. I just sort of think it's pretty. <laughs> Big if true. And, and, and like a small poke <laughs> on a weekend. I'm getting old. But anyway, um, so the marijuana plants not doing so great, but the Bogan Villa just like literally in the last two days exploded with these pink flowers. So it's like the one wow. has gone down and the other one's come up. And so this is healthy, fresh, actual flower that's like dominating my my view magnificent makes me, makes me jolly so i just i want to say uh to start the show and usually let's go back to like a thing we did long ago which is to give a sense of where we think the show is going uh one thing we want to talk about is nick's exciting uh vaccination experience in combination with uh <laughs> Yeah, the, we're really the, we're really zoo. pushing what can be what can be mashed together uh, as topics. Um, Got a little zoo, a little Boxburg Zoo story combined with vaccines, and then we want to talk about the American Empire. Uh, and uh, I we talk about that a lot. I think we've got some fresh things to say from this week. Yeah, we haven't uh, we haven't talked about it for for a while. I think um, unless I'm forgetting, but uh, we we you know we focused a lot on it last year because it was the lead up to the elections and the aftermath of that. But yeah, we, I think well, we spoke about Afghanistan and and the collapse. But yes, although that's that's not just about America. No, no, exactly. And 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 you gave us a great history that uh, was very non-America centric, which was really good about that region. Um, and then we want to get into some of the polling. And I'm just sort of saying this at the start because the uh, there's been some polling that we commissioned and uh, it's been embargoed um, uh, until basically yesterday. I'm not going to get into all of it, but it's pretty interesting stuff. And we'll touch on some of the, the, the findings that we had. Um, and these are polls about basically the elections that coming uh, that are coming up in a month, in a month today. This is the 1st of October and the 1st of November. We'll be, we'll be seeing 
where the lay of the land is in real terms. But right now we've got a snapshot to just think about that. And I think that would be interesting. But first, yeah, yeah, Nicholas, yeah. Uh, you've been double jabbed. You clapped it, Brew. Yeah. Well yeah, done. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Good experience. Must, great experience look, first, or perfectly the first seamless. Time, the first experience. time was was a good experience because I didn't do anything I was supposed to do. Uh, you know, when they, that the way that it's supposed to work is you're supposed to register on the vaccine system and then the government is supposed to send you an SMS and then you show up at that point of time to get vaccinated um, as per your appointment with a specific voucher number and all sorts of layers of bureaucracy. Yeah, like you were that. like, nah. I'm going to just wait until like, late in the afternoon. Eh, yeah, that sounds a bit like I haven't got my SMS with my voucher number yet. That doesn't really – I don't feel like, you know, I'm really on board with this. I don't want to wait in any lines. Um, waited until right near the end of the day. It was like, ooh, the place I wanted to go to was already out of vaccines. And so I was like, ah, okay, well, whatever. I wonder if there's somewhere else around. My mom said, hey, I saw on Twitter this, this place will be open late with vaccines. It was the Houghton uh, Mosque. Classic. Showed up. There were, uh, I think, I think everyone there was a volunteer who worked at the mosque, and or, or, was, or was was kind of involved with the community there. Easy peasy, no waiting. Took me twenty minutes. Lovely. You know what's great 20 about minutes a mosque? With the, right. Mosque is what I really like about mosques and Orthodox churches are like this too. Lots of standing room. Yes. No furniture. Although this was actually it was actually in the courtyard outside. So I don't know if you know the the Houghton Mosque, but it is. It is rather large, and there's a mm. lot of space around it as well. So it was actually just out in the grounds. Um, yeah. Easy peasy. It was like 20 minutes, including the 15 minutes observation period that you have to stay there. It, including parking, yeah. Yeah, and parking, right? This time, I did what I was supposed to do. <laughs> Got an SMS from the government. Dear Nicholas Lorimer, you have been designated time to show up at this place at this time. <laughs> and it gave me between 10 and 12 uh, at the uh, Mill Park Hospital. So off I went. Um, now, admittedly, I was late because I just resent being told what to do by the state. <laughs> See, that's, that's the thing. There's something about being a kind of small-c conservative that's also a lot like being a, a big a adolescent like <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much um so i showed up and uh they uh they had queue upon queue system upon system you had to fill in forms you had to wait in like i think it was four different queues with no obvious explanation or logic to it <laughs> uh with every single Q system being run by someone different who often was a bit overworked and couldn't run the system properly and they kept having to run back and forth and would make a mistake here or someone would start talking to them and then they wouldn't move the queue along and anyway so that was frustrating you then also had to fill in a form which was full of information that has absolutely nothing to benefit me um it's like they want your medical aid information not because you have to pay for it they want it so that they, the government can charge the medical aid if you are a member of a medical aid so that they don't have to cover the cost. And I'm like, you know, I, I really pay what, what percentage of the money I'm paid in, in taxes, some significant amount, right? And 
this is this is like one of the basics that should be buying. So I resent that as well. The fact that my medical aid is being shaken down for that money. But whatever. Eventually, after three hours, um, and it wasn't even that crowded, I, I did get vaccinated. Uh, and so if I start, to, you know, uh, if you start quiet, like complaining about a headache or declaring allegiance to the new world order as the podcast goes on. Um, <laughs> I apologize. It's probably the side effects. Bill uh, Gates, Bill Gates, dude. So, but I just want—I <laughs> want to draw out of you. You had a little anecdote about someone who had the wrong cell phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I forgot to mention that. So, I saw someone getting turned away. Um, it was kind of, I don't know, sort of middle-aged black guy. Was seemed very not confident in himself. Very small guy, like short, kind of massy dude. Um, and he was having his forms filled in by one of the three separate bureaucratic counters you had to go to. And they said, oh, no, sorry, your cell phone number doesn't match the one on the system that we had recorded for your previous jab, and we can't override it. So you now have to go back to your employer who apparently filled in the first form. I don't understand why, but anyway, who filled in the first form and get that corrected and resubmit, and we can't vaccinate you today. And I was like, What? are you doing <laughs> quite frankly this is insane yeah like this is not his problem yeah it's your problem and also yeah. shouldn't the goal here be to, uh, to vaccinate as many people as possible i thought that that was the goal and then you wonder why our vaccination numbers while they have improved are still pretty low yeah man Okay, um, so on the flippy flip, so a bit of a bummer with the bureaucracy but you did get the jab and yeah. i think that yeah uh, depending on where, you know, nice South African trick is just set your expectations low enough and, and thing like this is or a great success. Don't like follow you the only rules. had to wait there for three hours. Even better yeah, is don't, don't follow the rules. Yeah, don't follow the rules. Do your own thing. Show up as you want. Plead with people. Buy, give people chocolates instead of, instead of uh, I didn't have to do this, but you, you may have to. Give people chocolates instead of following the rules or, or, or something like that, and uh, you'll probably get a much better result than if you follow the rules. <laughs> But it's not usual that I endorse rule-breaking in such a flagrant manner, uh, except this is a really stupid system with stupid rules. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, I kind of want to segue into one of the polling points of well, well, what we saw with Ramaphosa, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that in the cooler box. So, so while I was driving around and waiting in the, the queue, I had time to think about things. And one of the things I had time to think about was a news story that I saw coming out of Boxburg. Uh, where, <laughs> Which I also saw. I mean, this is amazing. I'll yeah. just say, like, I'm sure I, many I of having... our listeners have probably seen this because it's wild. Yeah, this is the kind of story. I do feel like Two Crickets is pretty cutting edge. Like, I think we were the, you know, we were very hot on the story about the guy uh, who, the, the Cabbage King. The cabbage band yes because <laughs> we just we saw that and then like for for like two weeks afterwards it became like national news uh i feel like this is a similar south african story that might just capture people's imagination so there's a tiger there's a picture of a tiger like standing above a wall <laughs> yeah, and then there's like a playground <laughs> so, so, so there's a crash and the teachers were there one day in the crash and they looked at the neighbor's place and they saw a tiger, a big white tiger, fully grown, staring towering, back at them. Towering over. Because it was sitting you know on, the, how, on, the, like, on the jungle gym seen... in the neighbor's backyard. Garden. Yes. Like when cats, there's a certain way that a cat looks 
at lunch. <laughs> like, like dogs are not like this. If a dog sees no. lunch, like it's either going straight for it or there's a master saying, sit, stay, sit, stay. And it's like yeah. shaking its tail wildly and it's waiting to go. There's a and way that like a cat can look yeah. at lunch that's like, okay, that's lunch. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder which bit I'm going to take first. Maybe right, the head, so that's the exact, maybe the toes. That's the exact image you should have in your mind of the tiger looking over into the playground of this crash. <laughs> not a good all the little look. snacks. <laughs> now, there is a wall between the two, and uh, the crash owners complained. They said, well, this is outrageous. You can't have tigers. And the local councillor, some city officials, I think it was the, the Ikurileni Metro Police, were kind of involved, and they said, oh, um, so according to what we've seen, the owner has the paperwork to possess these animals, and we can't find a bylaw that says that this is illegal. Now, I just want to point out one thing. That, so I know a little bit about tigers because I watched some videos about animals and things. And Dude, we all one of the amazing tiger things. King. Come on, Tiger King. That's not huge. just Tiger King. Locked I mean, down. That, 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 was, that was a magnificent time. I feel like I know everything about tigers because I watched Tiger King. They can jump four meters high, right? Vertically up. And there is maybe a 1.7 meter, 1.9, 2 1. meter 9. wall. Yeah. Yeah. Between the tigers and the crash. Now, <laughs> it doesn't take a genius. It takes a Google search and about 10 seconds of thinking to realize that regardless of whether you do have the permit or not to own the tiger, you should maybe make the fence a little bit higher. Maybe three yes. meters because, you know, maybe then it can't quite do the running jump over the thing and it can't see the children and all those sort of things. But no, they said, oh, it's fine. And oh, the, 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 there's no law. Now, this is a strange argument coming from me because normally I would say, hey, you know, that people's property, let them do what they want. Uh, you know, just because there's no law saying you can do something. Um, uh, yeah. The, you know, the absence you know, of a law doesn't I mean it's the right thing to do. Right, exactly. Like, it's it's clear that, 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 that there should be at least some sort of intervention in this case from authorities, even if it's just a sort of, hey, can you make your wall a bit higher kind of thing, right? Like yeah. it doesn't have to be... Like a stern word. Right. But no, there's nothing. So every facet of our lives, every little minute detail is, is, is policed. We have people being a, a, a harassed by the police for planting cabbages on their sidewalk, right? And, and, and in the park across the street from them. Um, we have hawkers being chased out of places where they're not really causing any problems uh, because there's no bylaw that says you can sell things here. We have people being fined and arrested. And I mean, we still have a freaking curfew, right? Because yeah. <laughs> of COVID, even though last night it's now from what, midnight till four or something? Midnight till four. You, you, right. I mean, there's really no science behind that. There's no, there's no argument to be made about keeping hospital beds open right now at the capacities. It's just yeah, paternalism. Right. It's, it's just the government it's, being it, like, we know what's good it's for also, you. Yeah, it's also just, you know, we need to look like we're doing something. So here's what we're going to do. But when it comes to something like this, <laughs> there's obviously at least room for negotiation about a solution. Yeah. No, government is just useless. What's the point of living in a nanny state? It's like, it's like, right. if you, you have, can't keep the tiger away over, from the children. <laughs> exactly. It's like having, it's like having an overbearing parent 
who controls what time you go to bed, when you eat, all these sort of things, but then encourages you to ride on a motorcycle without a helmet. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, <laughs> I mean, okay. What's, what's going on? Yeah, we're we're missing we're missing the the, the thing. Yeah. Anyway, that was that was my rant for today. Uh, a little taste of South Africa and how it put me in a little bit of a mood today. Um, I do think it's, it's, I quite, I must say, I, I quite like, I've been strongly recommended to watch Devil's Daughter, which I haven't, which is like a oh, bit yeah, of a neither have phenomenon. I. Um, my parents watched it. I'm look, I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking that out this spring. Um, there is something about, there's like a, there's a subculture thing on the East Rand and um, on the West Rand that's kind of interesting I suppose I don't I don't feel like I know it so well. Like I know inner city Joburg, I know plush suburban Joburg pretty well, lived there. And I feel like I've got a pretty good sense of rural South Africa. Um, and my rural South Africa anecdote about about the uh this is when I was in when I was in a place in the northwest getting very drunk with Dalvis in search of the truth uh in a in a terrible race story that i was covering at the time allegation of racism um i you know people at some point after the like eighth shot of tequila or something they insisted it was like a cultural right like we to see if we can trust you we have to get you very drunk and then see if you turn out to be a communist or something <laughs> they they started telling me about how people guard their their small holdings or their farms um and and uh, a tactic that was used by three people uh, was was wild animals, mainly lions, uh, but one of them had tigers, which I think are pretty effective kind of guard animals, both because they're really effective, um, as in they are territorial and deadly and pretty hard to bring down with a with a handgun, uh, so it's unlikely that crooks. Breaking uh, in. Even with a rifle, they uh, yeah. are for their money. I mean, there's yeah, stories yeah. from the Second World War of people being eaten by tigers in like battles and things. Uh, there's even some from the Vietnam War. Some non-insignificant number of American soldiers were killed by tigers and not by the Viet Cong. The, the Viet Cong. So, so those guys, yeah, I mean, permits. But my understanding for them is that they had to have three-meter-high fencing. That like that when you're in a game environment, if you've got wild game, if you've got big five wild game, there are quite strict rules about the enclosure, the perimeter conditions. But my assumption is that those are effectively bylaws or municipal, you know. So in a place, there's just this lacuna. Like, you know, if you're if you're in rural South Africa, then they probably have these laws. And so people have to uh, put up the high electric fencing to make sure that it all works out and put up signage so that you know what you're dealing with from the outside. Um, because it's not, you know, setting deadly traps is not legal here. And it's not legal most places. It's not uh, really the right way to go about things. Um, but in the in, in, in Boxburg, it seems like the municipality didn't get around to it. So there's just <laughs> massive gaping yeah. hole. <laughs> to be fair it's not a very common problem i can't imagine no no right so yeah one of the things about the law is that it doesn't always deal very well with strange cases anyway i, I don't know what a good segue is from 
from this to to that but maybe it is you know the picture of the tiger looming over the wall with the little kids that don't really don't really know what they're up to so the big story in american news this week was general milley uh who's basically the the top ranking american uh army chap uh head of the joint chief of the joint chiefs um and he was quoted by bob woodward woodward was one of the two great journalists who pursued the watergate scandal uh back in the day they worked at the washington and, post and he's basically always in the process of writing a book about what's going on inside the presidency and they always have like some single word dramatic title like yeah uh, last one was fear yes there you go uh, yeah. And that sort of Trump betrayal. expose. Chaos. Betrayal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 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 Woodward's book is about I haven't read the book, uh, just to be clear. Um, but the the praise is that during the insurrection, the storming of the DC capital of, of the United States, the, the wheels were really coming off. This is the thesis. That Donald Trump had fallen into a narcissistic tailspin of paranoid schizo what I would call you know the paranoid schizoid condition where really the evaluation is quite straightforwardly if you're with me you're good if you're against me you're evil um and so yeah I mean I think in a sense that is an ideology it's certainly uh, a terrible way to be the more powerful you are the more terrific it is um and i think it's just i mean it's it's definitely a background idea that lines up with my impression of 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 what trump was about at that period woodward seems to take it a step further and in part on the back of general milley's uh testimony so milley says to woodward things were so bad that i had to call the head of the chinese military operation and tell him that, who, who he has a prior relationship with, right? He's, he's kind of friends with this dude, apparently. Yeah. They've met and, each other and, at military conferences or something. As they should. You know, it's, it's a good idea to have uh, red lines, as they used to be called in the Cold War, these sort of open lines of communication between very important people right. at the and, top and, to make sure that you don't get even confused. Even just a few years ago, um, the, the, the American and Chinese military were much more willing to talk to each other fairly openly. Um, and I think they still do to some degree, despite the rise in hostility between the two countries. Yeah, it's a it's colder. We are sort of in Cold War Two, but the point is, during Cold War One, which which eventually matured into a much more hostile environment than Cold War Two is yet. Even in Cold War One, at the worst of it, there were red lines um, between the the Pentagon and the Kremlin, in particular between the the you know the head of uh, the Politburo and the President of the United States. So. So Millie calls uh, his Chinese counterpart and says, look, things are terrible, but we're not planning attack. There's no coup de main coming up against China. Uh, you might think that it would be a nice distraction from our local politics. You know, you are have been identified as a kind of communist. It's not going to happen. Don't you've you've heard and we've got intelligence uh, that lets, leads us to believe that you believe that something like this is going to happen, but I'm telling you it's not going to happen. And he gets pushed back like, yeah, but you're just saying it's not going to happen. That is what you would say if you were planning a sneak attack. You'd call us ahead and say, no, don't worry about it. Um, 
And he says, no, look, I'm telling you it's not going to happen. And that if it was going to happen, I would call you to warn you because this is crazy. It can't happen. It mustn't happen. Uh, if Even if the instruction was coming from the president, I'd call you in advance and you'd figure it out elsewhere. So this is what he's quoted. I'm paraphrasing what he's quoted as saying in Bob Woodward's book. Bob Woodward writes, co-writes it with someone else. Okay, so that leaks out just ahead of the release, but it's not really a leak. This is just a book. And the uh, Senate gets hold of it. And so the Senate calls, uh, Senate Oversight Committee calls Millie forward and says, you know, it sounds a lot like treason. Uh, it sounds like you were saying to a China, to, you know, a, a military operative in a relatively hostile state uh, that your loyalty was more to them than it is to the president. Um, and he basically sticks with his original version. He adds the word probably. He says, I called them and said, it's definitely not going to happen. We're definitely not going to attack you. And then I added after I was pushed, uh, you know, even if we were going to attack you, you would know that, you know, the, your intelligence gathering services would figure that out. And I would probably call you to warn you in advance. So he adds the probably. It doesn't really sound like he's denying it. It sounds like he's very much sticking with the story. So this sparks in the American media, uh, a storm, you might say in a teacup, but certainly a kind of media storm, with conservatives, Mike Pompeo, um, I think being chief amongst them, saying initially this is totally unacceptable and this is treasonous. And uh, Dem Democrats or progressives saying this is, this is, there's, n there's nothing to see here. You know, firstly, on his version, he told his superiors what he was doing, but then uh, Under Secretary uh, Miller and Secretary of State Pompeo both say, look, he told us that he gave a call, or he might have told us that he gave a call. He definitely did not tell us that he said to them, I will warn you if we are planning on attacking you. Uh, if he had said that, we would have uh, called him to book immediately. He didn't say that. Uh, so, so that's one of the sort of denials. Can I just can I just interject something here, which is that the impression I got from from the reporting on, on Woodward's book and the way this kind of quote gets fished out by Woodward is that Millie was kind of boasting about this <laughs> as like, man, I'm such a hero. Look at me being the responsible dude. Yeah. So, and so this is very important. Um, here's what's interesting about this to me, just as a, as a, as a, as a background point, like part of what's interesting about this is American politics is interesting. It's interesting when a nuclear superpower has got some kind of friction at the top of the chain of command. Um, and especially interesting when that involves its, you know, realpolitik primary rival. Um, this is not quite existential threat territory. I don't think it's as serious as that, but this is um, this is the stuff of history. Uh, if in 10 or 20 years, you know, things do get worse, American economy kind of falls apart, the Chinese economy starts stuttering because it's punishing its its uh, innovative tech cutting edge leaders. Uh, if the world really starts getting poorer uh, in a sort of 1920s, 1930s way and, and superpowers really do get more belligerent in order to distract their domestic, pop their populations uh, from domestic right. challenges. And then there's some kind of accident. This is the kind of moment that one might look back on and be like, you know, the fact that they didn't figure this out properly uh, was an early indication of of how dangerous things are. Um, and, in, you know, now Ferguson, this uh, 
Scottish historian who is based at the Hoover Institute in Stanford. Uh, he, who, who I like to read. Um, he had a piece which sort of came out independently in The Economist uh, by invitation. And one of the things that he said was when appeasers took charge in the United Kingdom, um, especially after World War One, it was against background conditions that are not dissimilar to what America is facing today. Huge fiscal problems, massive debt. And so ultimately, instead of maintaining your military, you kind of yeah, end up paying back the debt. State. And you've got like soldiers all around the world. You can't really increase them. You slowly decrease them. That creates vacuums of power. And the appeasers yeah. say, look, we... We, 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 we've got to focus on our own country. We can't look around the world, pull out of wherever things are getting complicated. And, and a famous moment that, that Ferguson refers to is an Oxford Union debate in something like 1933, which is the year Hitler comes to power, which where the, so the, the motion being debated is it is wrong to die for king and country. And that motion is passed. In other words, the side that's arguing against ever going to war, the, the total pacifist side, um, that side wins. And with with retrospect, that looks ridiculous. But Herchel, Churchill's comment at the time, he was obviously against this, was not so. Was that there's something laughable about these sort of poncy Oxford elites <laughs> um, enjoying their tea and scones and their cigar and whiskey. And everything's hunky-dory, and so they don't really, you know, they have a kind of decadent bourgeois morality where you don't need police, you don't need soldiers, it's Garden of Eden stuff. And it's kind of silly, it's kind of just silly. And he's like, at that level, it's not a big problem for them to win the debate. Here's the big problem, the message that is taken up in Berlin. Yeah, because they see that Rome. and they go, well. And Kyoto, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, well, these guys have gone soft. And the UK hadn't really gone soft. But Churchill's argument and Ferguson's rehearsal of the argument is that World War II, Churchill was asked, what is this war by Roosevelt? He said, this is the unnecessary war. Uh, it, it didn't need to play out that way. If they'd been tougher, if the, if the Nazis had been more afraid in the first place, they would have been more curtailed. There would have been no Holocaust. There would have been no invasion right. of the Czech Republic and so on and so forth. I mean, I don't because know, they wouldn't I don't have know, overestimated. Yeah. They wouldn't have supposed. I'm not saying this is true, but this is the theory right. that Nazi adventurism depends is, on the assumption that the English are as weak as their elites make them out to be, and exactly. that they won't and there's ever definitely, fight back. There's definitely some uh, actual evidence behind that. I, I think I'm correct in saying that Hitler's initial impression upon hearing that Britain and France had declared war um, after he invaded Poland was sort of concern and and even some 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 shock he thought i didn't think that they were actually going to do this um, i thought they were bluffing yeah. uh and you know he, he, he it's worth also remembering that the germans thought that they probably would fight france eventually but they weren't sure if they were ready then and they also thought that it would cost them like a million casualties it didn't because of circumstances but still that's kind of the mindset they were in when this happened and so um I think it is a reasonable theory from from Churchill there. Um, yeah. Me defending Churchill is not a terribly surprising thing. But. No, no, but and and so the thought is that like you know coming from two dudes who are pretty soft, 
that like personally, you know, it's nice to be gentle, but that countries when they're dealing with rivals, that there that there's good reason to to keep like a united front, to maintain the image of strength and so on, and 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 to, uh, Millie's to look Millie's, like a bit of a hard oak. <laughs> yeah, to look like a hard oak. You know, one of the bizarre things is that looking like a hard oak can sometimes avoid fights because then yeah. you just stare at each other and you're like, no. Nah. Uh, of course, it can go the other way if you get too caught up in your own military parades. And we had that worry as well. Okay, but so the point here is that uh, there is a worry uh, that Ferguson expresses, and he has close connections in China because he spent years teaching there and developing. He's quite a social networky guy. He's quite a high flyer. This sense is that, that you know there's a growing uh, group of Chinese top-level diplomats and foreign policy thinkers who are working on the assumption that America is fundamentally namby-pamby, weak and sort of limbristed or whatever, and that it's not going to really uh, spill blood or treasure in order to protect its vital interests. And that whether that impression is true or not, it's kind of a dangerous impression. And Millie seems to be contributing yeah. to that impression by saying to Woodward, look, we were in a crazy situation. Donald Trump was so mad that I was duty bound, maybe not by the law, but by, as Comey would put it, my fellow Princeton alum, uh, a higher calling to... <laughs> To do the right thing and say, look, the the president is not my is not my highest loyalty. My highest loyalty is to like um, saving the world from Armageddon, and the way that I need to do this is by telling the Chinese, really, I am we, we're in it together as people, and I will stab my president metaphorically in the back. So this is like the Game of Thrones moment. If you know the show, it kind of all starts out with the Mad King. Uh, who has this drag has like dragon fire and he just goes matter and matter and is, is saying, burn them all. He just wants to burn everyone down because he's kind of sick of life and the hand of the King, the top guardian of the King, the, the chief of the King's army uh, ends up stabbing him uh, in the front as it turns out. Uh, and, and he gets called, uh, you know, oath breaker and King Slayer. Uh, for the rest of his life, people have a very negative attitude towards them because they've got a very strong sense of loyalty or fealty. But his counter-argument is, dude, it was that or the destruction of everyone. Like, you owe me your life. It was a vow, and I broke my vow, and I should never have done that to protect the king. Uh, but I had a higher calling to do it. This is Millie's argument to Woodward. This is not his argument to the Senate, <laughs> and so the background that I wanted to say, why I find this interesting, and not just the politics, it's the philosophy of it. You know, my fiance is writing her PhD on action theory. And one of the things that she talks to me a lot about is this, is the difficulty of interpreting other people's actions. And this is like a good case study because there's one version where what he's doing is the game of Thrones thing, which is he's betraying America, but protecting humanity. Okay, that's one interpretation. Right. Here's another interpretation of what he's doing. He's just lying. He's really loyal to Trump. He's really loyal, not to Trump as an individual, but he's loyal to the presidency. He's loyal to the American army. He's loyal to the American cause. And he's phoning the Chinese and he's lying to them. 
He's saying, look, I would warn you, but he wouldn't warn them. And he knows that he wouldn't warn them. And he's just trying to bamboozle them into thinking that he's their friend. Calm them down, right. And this is the kind of thing, I mean, if you watch any any spy movies or you read actual spycraft, Graham Greene, John le Carre, people who, who know from the business because they've been in the business, it's such a typical thing to try and win over one of the enemy in back channels by pretending to be their loyal friend. In fact, my favorite Russian novel is called The Hero of Our Time by Mikhail Lermontov. And it was probably well, the second most famous Russian novel in its time, from about the 1840s. And it starts out with this, this preface, which says, uh, you know, prefaces often apologize for the book because it's, you know, it's too outrageous and they're trying to say it's not all that bad, or they're just trying to boast about how the book is really good. But here's what my preface is about. It's about telling the reader that you're not going to get this. You're not going to understand this book because most Russian readers are so stupid, are so naive that if they were to read about two diplomats meeting together for lunch and at the end of it, they're both drunk and they're weeping and hugging each other and saying that they'd both betray their own countries for one another's friendship, most Russians would actually believe it. That's how naive you are, dear reader. And it's a great setup to the book to be like, you know, don't be a schmuck. Don't be a pleb. Look, look through the, the first layer of, 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 the, of the glass uh, to see what lies beneath. So, of course, he says this thing. And, of course, it's a lie. That's the second interpretation. The third interpretation is that it's such an obvious lie that it's not even a lie. That's what the philosopher Harry Frankfurt would call bullshit. Uh, uh, bullshit is, you know, something tr Trump was an expert at. Often it was mistaken, uh, but a lot of people do this, where you say something that's so obviously not true that you're not trying to deceive the other person, that you're just saying something that's rubbish. So, you know, he says right. to the Chinese guys, look, we're not attacking you, and even if we were, I would tell you, and I'm telling you that we're not, so you can trust me. The Chinese guys, like, hang up. They're like, they laugh. They're like, that's a bunch of bullshit. He's not telling the truth. He doesn't think he's deceived them. They don't buy it for a minute. It's just, it's just hot air. It's just emotion. It's a little bit like uh, if you've got a certain kind of partner that needs a lot of affirmation, they might phone you and you, you know, how am I looking? You, you, you phone them and you say, "Darling, you're looking so good today." And she's <laughs> like, "Oh, thanks." You can't even see her, right? But it's not about telling the truth. It's just about putting in some emotional energy. He's just phoning to say. You look so great in those earrings, like even though I can't see you. Right. So, okay, right. so these are three action interpretations. The one thing is betraying your country. The other thing is telling a lie, betraying the Chinese, which is wrong. You shouldn't be telling lies like that. You've been caught out, but it's a different kind of wrong. Um, and the third is that you're, not, you're just bullshitting. No one, no one believes this for a moment. Now, Elena's thesis is that sometimes amongst other things is that the facts might underdetermine the interpretation in other words we might not be able to know one way or another which it is what it is that really happened and pompeo kind of in his later interviews he does one with megan kelly uh who has her own show now which is kind of interesting uh where he steps back and says you know he comes pretty close but this is not really treason you know maybe he's just kind of talking nonsense. He starts out by quite hard in earlier interviews saying this seems pretty treasonous to me. This is treasonous. Um, and I think you get a sense of how difficult 
it is to make the hard action judgment because I'm quite inclined to say, as Nicholas said, like this guy was boasting to Woodward. He was trying to make the case that Trump was so crazy that this that is was such what was justified, that this was right. necessary, that he otherwise there might have been a nuclear war. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm literally but, the savior but of if humanity. That's, yeah. So this is kind of, that does seem to be what fits the facts best. But but if you really commit yourself to that interpretation, then one of two things has to happen. Either he has to be court-martialed for treason. And we looked it up. I looked it up. I don't think anyone's been executed for treason in America in the last hundred years. Um, what the, execution uh, the, the, Rosen, the Rosenbergs executed for treason? The, the ones who gave the nuclear secrets to the Soviets. Wikipedia might have misled me. I didn't Google this very hard. So, but let's just say maybe execution is, <laughs> is a step, is, is, is a heavy step, but that is kind of where you have to start thinking about what the punishment should be. Uh, maybe you say some mitigating factors uh, amongst others that you didn't do that much actual harm. It's not like you really did give over. The right. Thing. That, that is kind of part of the problem. I think with the treason charges that, uh, you know, he didn't, necessarily provide aid and comfort to the enemy because he didn't do anything except he just said that he would provide he aid said and that he would right but that yes. in itself does have some harm because as we said well, as i was trying to argue through churchill like the impression creating the impression that america's chain of command right at the yes, top yes, yes. is is uh broken uh does real harm to america's interest and the world's interest in peace okay so this is a very hard you know, the point is you have to, okay, maybe not execution, but like jail the guy, well, definitely fire him. fire him. That seems like on the one side. And I don't know how, I don't know that I feel the other option is to say, no, what he was doing, he did do this. He did betray the president, but he did that because the president was crazy. And you sort of retrospectively double impeach Trump. Uh, for being insane and putting the country at risk in that way, and in that way, sort of vindicate so, Millie. These both seem something. politically like nightmare options. So, so right. my concluding thought is just this: that if you're on the anti-Millie side, your your challenge is that what he did is also compatible with ordinary diplomacy of bullshitting or lying, and and. And I don't think you're going to ever be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, and I don't think you're going to be able to persuade people on the other side uh, that that isn't what was going on if that's the line that he sticks to. It's not the line that he said to Woodward, but it's much more the line that he was giving to the Senate Judiciary, the <laughs> Oversight Committee. So if he sticks to this line of like, maybe I was just bullshitting, I don't think you can ever prove him wrong. On the other hand, if you're for Millie, and this is my sort of last word on this. The side that's for Willie, Millie is in charge. Biden's in charge. Biden likes Millie. He's going to keep him there. And the Democrats will protect him. Now, I think that's fine because I think there's a defensible interpretation of what he did, namely that he was bullshitting, just de-escalating, saying whatever needed to be said, even though it wasn't true. Uh, here's the problem. They then need to commit to that version. At the moment, what they're doing is saying, look, maybe Trump was so crazy that it is justified for the America's top general to break loyalty 
break the chain of command and give aid and comfort to the enemy or, uh, uh, you know, a, a rival state. Promise, yeah, promise to give aid. Promise to. Uh, and, if he, and if that's what he was doing, that's good. Or maybe what he was doing was just de-escalating the situation and things weren't that crazy in the White House, but there was this impression and so he was just doing what he could to make sure this impression was kept aside. Or maybe he was outright lying to the Chinese in order to... To, to achieve the same thing, to de-escalate the situation. Whichever one it was, that's good enough for us. Now, to me, that is, that's a nice example like of, of this thing that Elena's been talking to me about abstractly of a kind of um, ambivalent action judgment where you say, okay, here's the complicated thing about actions. You know, the same facts could be consistent with multiple interpretations. But then I give a blanket approval for all of the interpretations on the basis, and the only way that you can justify that blanket approval is on the basis that it's good for our team. That no matter which one of those interpretations is true, it's good for us. And it's bad for Team Trump. Because it's bad for Team Trump if this guy is showing how crazy Trump was, that his generals had to defect, even if only momentarily. It's bad for Team Trump if that's not what was happening and he was actually just doing regular diplomacy, but now he's being accused of doing a terrible thing. So he's like a victim of false accusations from the right. Either way, that's kind of good for us. And so we're going to stick with it either way. That seems like quite a sophisticated, but very real example of, of, of using what's good for your team, which is ultimately the same paranoid schizoid way of thinking what's what's good for us is is good overall and what's bad for us is is evil and that's all you need to know those are the only standards of adjudication that really right. apply and so we would go further and we would pick apart which one of these three interpretations is correct if one of them was maybe bad for us then we'd check in whether we can debunk that uh or whether it applies and we need to learn a lesson. But as long as all of the interpretations that are on the table are good for us, we'll, we'll affirm all of them. I think that that's not great. And I think that it's also very, I don't think that that helps the other side because I think the other side is going to sit with a kind of another one more one more nail in the kind of deep state coffin, which is this really bad idea that America's bureaucracy or its civil service and increasingly its military and its intelligence service are, are political all the way through and that right. you can't trust them if you belong to one political party. You can't trust them if you belong to another one. That's a really bad idea for America's conservatives. Uh, the a, further they go down that which hole, nations collapse. <laughs> that, yeah, that's how the tinfoil hat lunatic conspiracy theorists uh, end up being tastemakers that make it impossible for, for really excellent uh, civil servants and military servants to rise up and make it impossible to have good faith policy disagreements. And it's only by having good faith disagreements, I think, that America can navigate um, what looks to be a very difficult decade lying ahead. Uh, so, so I think this is like a small moment, and and I'm pretty sure that, that very little is going to come of it. Um, 
and I and and I think that's probably okay. Like I don't think Millie needs to be fired or uh, court-martialed or hung, drawn, and courted. I think it would be enough for him to just consistently say, look, of course I wasn't betraying the president. I was just lying to the Chinese. Um, and let's move on. Uh, because in a way, so, I think a bit of hypocrisy can be the oil that smooths over troubled waters. And he, and he would in that way learn his lesson not to boast about being a kingslayer. <laughs> And that would right. be that would send a signal to to stop using Trump as an excuse uh, to subvert democratic norms. So so Trump yeah, did to, a lot of bad things. To behave like a tonsil. Be. Yeah, <laughs> but that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen instead is that he is going to remain a kind of anti-Trump hero, and for that reason, Trump is going to remain a kind of Trump Trump hero, and America seems to be stuck in the same conversation for the next four years as it's been in for the last five years. And that doesn't seem good to me. So can I just make another point on the whole? Yeah, that was my uh, long Millie, rant. Millie saving, saving the world from nuclear Armageddon. So that's, I think, our defense, some of the people um, that, that perhaps he suggested of himself and that some of his defenders are, are kind of making here. And one of the problems with that is if it were, if he did indeed, you know, it like an action hero, stop evil mad President Trump from pushing the button to launch the nukes at the last second, right? Distract. Then yes, you you could make a strong argument for he saved the world uh, and and even the republic from itself in a sense, right? Yeah. But here's the thing: when you're dealing with nuclear diplomacy, things are very delicate. And everyone needs to know what everyone else is doing. Because, as you've just explained, um, very in-depth, you can't always tell what someone is doing by simply the facts. So when he spoke to the Chinese, he, he either was offering to betray his country or he was just talking garbage, in which case, was there really any point in, in, in taking anything he said seriously? Or he was deliberately lying to them for his own country's ends. If you're China, you don't know which of those three it is. You have to guess. And that can lead you into awful, awful miscalculations, um, which can be made even worse if the, uh, if the government itself doesn't necessarily know what, what was being said. So in this case, the Americans or at least the, his, his seniors, Millie's seniors um, in, in the civilian administration, say that while they were aware of some of this conversation, they weren't aware of all of it. So in other words, by saying these things to the Chinese, he may have in fact made things worse and made the chances of a armed confrontation between the two more likely, because it's very possible, um, although I don't think this did happen in this case, but it's possible that what could have happened is the Chinese would have gone why is he calling us all of a sudden to tell us this? It yes. must be, it must be that they are really planning to attack, and so we have to there's, hit them first. <laughs> there's no smoke without fire. Now, right. I don't think. I mean, the point is the background point to remember, in case this sounds ridiculous, is that we are increasingly, I believe, kind of at the at the height, at the apex of the peace of our times. Yeah. The, the the prosperity that America enjoys 
at this stage is sadly so debt fueled that it is very difficult to see continued growth in the American economy at the rate that it has been uh, in our lifetime, continuing for generation. Seems very likely, avoidable, I hope, but it seems very likely that there will be major economic ructions in America. In fact, I spoke to uh, a top, a top um, economist, let's say top Ivy League economist, uh, who said, you know, you, what you probably don't realize is that in a way the bubbles already burst. And it's just that the, the meter on the dashboard is still catching up with what the wheels are doing on the ground. <laughs> Um, so he was like, if you're into predictions, uh, you're, you're probably playing the wrong game. What you should be into is, is trying to understand how this has already happened. The bubble has already burst. It's now, it's just a very slow detonation and, and you need to see where it is. Okay. So that's one I economist eat, theory. I eat buy gold. <laughs> but, but it is a serious concern that, and, and China's also a serious concern. Now, if we are on the back of a coronavirus pandemic which in both America and China's case, you know, has been devastating in terms of people dying, real excess deaths, uh, worrying in terms of kind of civil liberty uh, incursions. But in right. terms of material circumstances, Americans are basically better off now than they've ever been. Uh, savings are up. Everyone got two and a half thousand dollars for free from the government. Uh, unemployment was at record lows before the pandemic. Uh, GDP growth is at record highs at the moment. You know, this is this really is still the good times. And when the good times are going, you've got a lot more leash. There's a lot more room for silly buggers. If we were 20 years down the line or 10 years down the line, and those are 10 bad economic years, and infighting within... Uh, Beijing and Washington has gotten more poisonous. Factions are more distrustful. The trust deficit Paranoia increases both higher, within right. those countries and across those countries. Paranoia gets higher. There's more military adventurers and the Cabbage Patch policy in the South China Sea has expanded. It's also been met with some real resistance. You have, you know, in the last five years, you can remember dogfights with airplanes nearly shooting each other down, but then dodging. Uh, maybe some accidental airplane is shot down like we've seen between other countries, but it doesn't spill over into right. anything hot, but it does increase the tensions dramatically. Then you get into a situation where America's top general is <laughs> is phoning to say, hey, darling, you're looking very good with your earrings. <laughs> right. I promise I'm not cheating on you. I'm not cheating on you. And if I was going to cheat on you, I would call you in advance to tell you I was going to cheat on you. And then the Chinese <laughs> guy goes, dude, uh, they must be cheating on us because why the right. hell would you phone us to say that you, this is that is that, that's that's a situation uh, which is exactly like this one, excepting that the background conditions are worse. And that's a situation in which. Um, well, this is exactly why I think that Millie all our hairs should be standing on end, you know, right? This is this is exactly why I think he should be fired. Um, I don't think he should face any legal sanction, but I think he should be fired because Millie is either a reckless fool or a uh, kind of uh, self-aggrandizing moron. 
but <laughs> Nick, who's going to fire him? Well, it would have to be Biden, of course, but, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, a case has been made. Um, if he's so willing to undermine, uh, this is not a case I may, I make, but uh, some people have said, if he's uh, so un uh, willing to undermine a president, let's say we're two years from now, Biden is looking real old and creaky, and then Millie starts thinking to himself, you know, this man can't be left in charge of the country. I really should be... Uh, should be the guy, I, you know, if Biden runs again for office, it's going to be a really bad thing. So I need to step in here and make sure he doesn't do X, Y, or Z. So military leaders shouldn't be getting involved in politics in this kind of way. They should take their orders from the civilian leadership unless things are really dire, unless you're in the heat of battle, basically. Um, so I, I think that this is really bad stuff. I mean, Obama probably justifiably fired an American general for making a joke, which sounded like he was kind of going against the president's wishes. Yeah, uh, I remember that. Yeah, and, and that, that was, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Obama, but I thought, you know, that, I think that's a pretty good thing. No, <laughs> dude, that was military. damn straight. I, I had friends in ROTC, people who were, were army trainees and recruits at university with me at the time, and they were generally very chill dudes. It was a funny thing about, like, all this military talk, like some of the most chill people I knew uh, Israeli ex-soldiers, um, as it happens. But I, I remember my American ROTC friends were like, you should know this is why sometimes you ask us a question and then we kind of get a bit cagey. It's because, it's because our code requires a kind of diffidence to um, the civilian authority, whatever party it is, yes. that yes. that we it's not that we can't have political ideas and we can't vote and whatever but we do all in our minds have to draw some hard lines of, of sort of where we won't go uh and and that example was given a case in point and you know i thought in a way you guys are being a little bit grandiose you know these are a bunch of princeton kids who who are like <laughs> at 21 training their minds to be um to be top generals one day but you know that is the kind of university that is and and, 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 you know, looking back, I don't know, even at the time I was impressed, I was impressed by that sense of, of a code of ethics that, that does permeate your life. And, yeah. and, and the same thing with doctors, friends of mine who have trained to be or have become doctors, they're kind, there are some things that they just, there's some places they won't go, there's some things they won't do, even for a lot. Right. And there's a, there's a reason why the only major government institution in the United States or institution full stop that has a lot of popularity is the army. Because... Traditionally, it has done this sort of stuff, right? It's had this code of conduct. It's pursued excellence. And I think one of the terrible things of the last couple of months has been that those things seem to have been severely undermined. Competence, we've seen that the way that the Afghanistan thing was pulled off. And as much as Biden is certainly to blame with that for that, I think the U.S. military definitely has some. Well, so this is the other side of it, right? So the right. other big story of the week, and these two stories kind of crush each other in exactly the way that this crickets episode bears out. The other big story <laughs> of the week is that Millie says, and others say even more forthrightly, that Biden was told that, that the best happen. military or something like this might happen. So right. something like this would happen, and the best thing to do would be to keep twenty five hundred troops on the ground uh, so that they could maintain intelligence intelligence gathering, so that they could help a transition between the you know theoretical Afghani uh, political leadership and the Taliban. Um, and, and, and Biden basically just Biden's line is that 
he forgot that they didn't say it clearly enough. Uh, so we have the screw up of Trump abandoning the Kurds, then the double screw up, which we got very angry about with Trump uh, basically having the or the Doha negotiation, whatever those negotiations were with the Taliban, but not with the Afghan government that the America was propping up at the time. Then the screw up of Biden uh, abandoning the idea that we're, we'll only pull out on this date. You know, at least the, the Pompeo's idea was we'll only pull out by May 1st if you guys have checked these boxes. Okay, you haven't checked these boxes. Okay, we're still going to pull out. So that's Biden's uh, grand strategic contribution to the nightmare. And then on top of that, the army now saying, look, the last general, the last commander in chief, we phoned the Chinese to say, look, we're not going to follow his orders and we're going to tell you if he gives stupid ones. And this commander in chief, we told him that we shouldn't pull out in this way. And he just can't remember it. Like this is, <laughs> there are a lot of guns involved. There are a lot of bullets yeah, and bombs. This is way too much to be. There's a lot of butt covering as well. Which to, is... the, to the lion tiger next to the crash with these little kids kind of pointing fingers at yeah, each other. And yeah. And, and 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 I I I heard I was listening to the the commentary podcast, which is I think these days my favorite podcast. And uh, the host John Podoris was saying, when the Israelis made a big mistake in their intelligence operations, I think they they accidentally killed some Palestinian civilians, like they dropped a bomb on like a preschool or something like that. It was you know it's a, one of those horrible things that, that happens in wars. There was a major reshuffle of the entire intelligence department. People got in trouble. Uh, people were fired. People were shifted down to positions. People demoted. All that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> when the Americans bungle their withdrawal from a country, fail to uh, properly get a strategic report of the, the, the problem, kind of just generally seem incompetent, stick their allies in the back, and then afterwards kill seven children in an airstrike no. that was a mistake no. no one gets in trouble no one maybe yeah, someone was even... shouted at behind closed doors but no, no one has been dude. fired no man even zwelium kize was put on suspended leave with pay yes. you know yeah. we literally have more accountability for some guy ultimately being involved with stealing a few million bob you know than than america has had for the grandest this is this is you know now ferguson's point is like in history is this a little bit like the Suez Canal crisis for the UK in 1952? Hmm. This is... 1956. This is, I think I read about it actually in the, the This Week in History. 56, sorry. Uh, let me go check the date. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, man. It, it's, it's, it's astonishing the lack of accountability and it's astonishing. Watching the American news has been so depressing. Like, the reason I mentioned Megyn Kelly was because I watched five interviews with Pompeo and, you know, Megan Kelly, just to remind the listeners in case they forgot, she was like Fox News. She's kind of embarrassing sometimes. She said, you know, Jesus must be white and so is Santa. Um, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> it's kind of just silly. I don't know. It's not It's not good, actually. I mean, I think that is not good. Um, but but I don't want to get too hung up on that. She's Anyway, she's not, not a perfect person. None of us are. Uh, then she had a tough run-in with Donald Trump when she was at Fox, and he insulted her, and I thought she was doing a good job, but eventually she ended up kind of getting frozen out of Fox, and uh, she seemed to be involved in in disgruntlement to, you know, to do with sexual harassment allegations involving Roger Ailes. 
uh, later Bill Maher, although I don't think she knew much about that. But anyway, the point is she then sort of tried to be the sort of formally conservative the face of of conservative America that's that kind of just can't handle Trump and is so is going center, um, and that didn't work out very well for her at her new show. And so now she's got like a new new show, which is kind of smaller scale. And maybe I think it's because she's got punished. She's the only person in an interview with Pompeo who didn't either a um, take everything he says in bad faith and and, <laughs> and just kind of mud wrestle like the CNN guys have. Or just take everything he says as like perfectly true. She kind of fact-checked right. him a little bit as he was going, but kind of also was sympathetic to the point that he was making that that you shouldn't be boasting about this kind of thing. If nothing else, right. the clearest thing is he shouldn't be talking for so long. Yeah, well, she's would she's a remnant of, of the Republican Party before Trump, actually. Um. So that is that is what I was getting. And, and, and it was amazing how rare that seemed to be in my kind of our long delve into different interviews on this topic and and the kind of old democrat and the kind of old republican that that puts that kind of puts things that you know that isn't personality obsessed and obsessed with sort of winning every point um a kind of disciplined and curious uh old-fashioned american it's just it's very hard to find, and and yeah. that's kind of cons and the, and the most obvious way that that is expressed is in how little of a call for straightforward accountability there is on this issue. Not like Burnham yeah, it's all, or it's, it's it's all yeah, it's all witch hunting or uh, 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 or, or defensive ass covering. That's yeah. and that is if anything is a sign of decline. That is. And that and that's where you, I think this action theory thing is kind of useful. Like, you can tell someone's serious when when they're not saying, "Look, these are the facts. This is the only interpretation that's consistent with that." I don't want to hear any other interpretation. If you're even saying some other interpretation, it's evidence that you're on the wrong team. Um, <laughs> serious people are like, "Okay, these are the facts. This is what seems to be consistent with it. What further facts can we find?" to either disprove or prove one of those interpretations. And if we're stuck with not being able to know which one is the right interpretation, let's not pretend that means they're all right or all wrong. Let's then find a way of acting within that sort of position of epistemic humility. Because sometimes we don't know. And you have to find right. a way to go forward in any event. And that's where I'm kind of pushing with the, the virtue of hypocrisy. Like, if he at least... Assuming that he d he was boasting, and assuming that at the time he did think that he was saving the world, like in the rearview mirror, he should be ashamed of that and realize that he was just caught up in the moment and resign. That would be ideal. But at least if he said unequivocally, you know, it was a mistake for me to speak to Bob Woodward that way. I see that his book has created the impression that what I did was a good thing. That can't be correct. As a currently serving U.S. military general, yeah. I can't stand by while someone says that I'm a hero my, because yeah, I betrayed my country. That's not true. I was just, and I hate to admit this because this is going to undermine our trust with the Chinese, 
but I don't think they believe me anyway. I was just talking hogwash. I was just kind of trying to say words to tone down the situation. I would never betray my country in that way. No one should think that. If he just said that, even if it wasn't true, I think that would get us going in the right direction. Right, it would, it would be good. I've got but, some tolerance yeah, for hypocrisy. Say- and maybe that'll take me back to Saul Ramaphosa and a brief thing on on the elections. My, just, just can I say my impression of Millie is that he is a status-seeking, ladder-climbing weasel of the worst kind. You know, a status cli- a, a, a ladder-climbing, status-seeking weasel can be good if they sort of... Th- there's a certain type that can be good. But I think he might be the bad kind, <laughs> which is really willing to just kind of, in a moment, to impress someone in an interview to, that they think he's some kind of genius, uh, talks garbage. Uh, I mean, it starts boasting about something stupid he did. He's not a serious person, but he's in such a serious position, man. And I didn't even yeah, know his name, you know, until yeah. No, I was vaguely familiar with him, but I didn't know his character. He actually, I think, became infamous when he sort of defended um, certain stuff about critical race, uh, studying critical race theory in uh, in the mili- in the American military. Right. Um, okay, I, that was him. Yeah, and that's that's how he drew the eye of the right to begin with. He is, unlike most senior political, uh, senior military figures in the US, he is, he is, I think, far more political than a lot, a lot of them. And uh, that worries me. But anyway, um, we are over time. So let's wrap up quickly with the Cyril thing. So the Cyril thing is, so, dude, I'm very, our, our polling results were, were in some ways very depressing. Uh, my theory has South Afri- been it's South Africa, you can't get at least a little bit you ha- there's always a little bit of depressing in every story <laughs> yeah so so the most depressing result is basically that favorability for John Steenhuisen is is so racial uh, tiny favorability amongst black respondents, huge favorability amongst white and colored respondents and also Indian respondents um, although I, I, I wouldn't take those that uh, despairingly in, in, a, in a sense that the vast majority of voters just don't know who he is. Correct. So, well, not, not the vast majority, but like 50% of respondents basically. Yeah, 50%, right? Didn't know who he was. So I do think, so, so that is, that is the, that is uh, the, the salve or, to the despair is that. Although so that far does it say seems, something about the country in that. The leader of the opposite of the official opposition is not known by half of voters. Uh-huh. That yeah. also doesn't say something good. <laughs> yeah, it says something really bad about the media and how it covers politics. And I suppose you can't get away from it about ordinary South Africans and how people consume news media and that not well, enough don't. people are yeah. So okay, you know, that it's it's a mixed bag. I'm not saying uh that if you go into the street, like, you know, Oscar and a black dude, they're going to hate John Steenhuisen. That's not what it shows. As you say, you got someone and they're not likely to know what John Steenhuisen is. <laughs> and as I've often pointed out, and we were kind of bitter that we didn't ask about Hen and Zilla, Hen and Zilla has much stronger brand recognition. I mean, I have hmm. had conversations hmm. with, with people who've never worn shoes, who are desperate for some Hen and Zilla in their lives. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is amazing. But it's I, not I think I think you would... I think you would probably find, uh, I know this has been true in the past and it's probably still true that Helen Zilla is more popular than the DA. 
and Silver Ramaphosa is way more popular than the ANC. So, and and just yeah. to go through the other leaders, Mangosuta Putulezi has pretty good brand recognition. He's kind of loved, kind of loathed, but relatively uh, stable character. Julius Malema is like 30, like Polarizing. a third of black respondents were like, we love him. A third of black respondents were like, we hate him. Um 98% of people knew who he was. Everyone knew who Ramaphosa was, and he was the only one who had strong net positive favorability. Very across all race groups, it's been the the only stable truth in a sense in South African politics for the last since 2017 is that Ramaphosa is the most popular person in the country by a country mile. Yeah. And and why is that? You know, so my theory is the Tsar theory and Levada, who, which is basically like the IRR of Russia. It's the last really credible think tank and pollster uh, that's genuinely independent from its government and from the sort of general media milieu, uh, which which is kind of anti-West in, in the same way that we're sort of anti-white monopoly capital. It's like an ideological fig leaf behind which all kinds of corrupt dealings get hidden. Um, Levada's often pointed out that that Putin's popularity does well when Russia does well, because everyone's like, well done, it's Putin who's who's to thank for this. But when things go badly, his popularity also goes stays up. Um, but then the explanation becomes he's the Tsar who protects who protects us from the government. And this was that's how that's how Russian politics worked, is that people would hate the local lord and the local bureaucrats. But they would love the Tsar because they'd hope that one day the Tsar would come to their village and then they would be saved. Um, so it's a great it's a great position to be in. Machiavelli said that if you're his his best advice to the prince was if you can make sure that uh, your people cannot imagine any alternative but you in your position, then everything that goes wrong uh, will have them cleave closer to you right. as their and, last and, hope. And everything that goes right is, will have them thank you. For your largesse. And this is, you know, this is a 500-year-old trick. And Ramaphosa has pulled it off. The question is, why haven't his political opponents been able to get at him? And I think it's because of exactly this thing I was trying to say about what would work if Millie just lied, but lied straightforwardly, even if it is a lie. You know, just said, look, guys, I'm sorry I bragged to Woodward, but you should never get the impression I'd betray my country. I never did that. I was always trying to, you know, just bullshit the Chinese. Uh, I, I never meant what it sounded like I was saying. People, I think, have a very high appetite for hypocrisy. People understand in their love lives, in their family lives, in their friendship circles, that there are all kinds of rooms to bend the truth uh, and that this can be an honorable thing to do. And it's very difficult for politicians to admit that, but it, they can easily be beloved for doing that. And this is Ramaphosa's trick, is that everyone has always thought of him as a hypocrite and a liar. Critics say, what were you doing during the Zuma years? You know, you didn't know. Oh, you're shocked that we've got load shedding. What an idiot. Uh, oh, you're saying you like EWC, but at the same time, you're saying that you want um, more investment. That doesn't make right, sense. Right. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. I think this form of criticism bounces off Ramaphosa and doesn't damage him because this is what people love about him. People love that he's Machiavellian. People love that he is hypocritical and manipulative and charming and that he's a survivor and that he's managed to hold on to power by not stepping on the wrong toes and making shady deals and speaking half-truths and double-truths and semi-lies and white-lies and all kinds of things like that. And 
as long as the criticism maintains that Sol Ramaphosa lacks integrity, I think that his his popularity is going to stay exactly where it is. Um, right. So, I think that so the you're only criticism basically... that works is that you're Machiavellian, but you're not good at your job. Uh, you haven't managed to get rid of your enemies. Uh, you People... haven't taken advantage of of the political capital you had. And as a result, things are getting worse. Uh, but that's an argument that only really becomes persuasive as time goes by. So I think we're kind of stuck with him being right. the most popular dude in the country for a while. Uh, uh, people people think of want to think of him kind of almost as Batman. You know, bends the rules, does the wrong thing, goes out of stuff in order to do the right thing. Uh, that's exactly it, dude. That and that's why Christopher Nolan's Batman. Christopher Nolan's Batman. You want to watch. You want to understand how Trump became so, so popular, good. why people didn't care that he, that he clearly was lying and bullshitting half the time. Go back and watch The Dark Knight Rises, the one with Heath Ledger, and see no, that a, tale the, that's of just the, the Dark Knight. It's not the Dark, the Dark Knight, Knight Rises. That's the, yeah, that's the, the third, third one. one. Uh, no, the second one is the one you're looking for. The third one is the one with uh, with, with Tom Hardy as... It's the greatest attack on the Wall Street, uh, Occupy Wall Street crowd. Anyway, <laughs> yes, but what's so great about what's so you know the the psychological trick that Millie is pulling off by maintaining this sort of ambiguousness, and you can like me no matter what interpretation of my action you've had, uh, and the and the trick that Ramaphosa has pulled off, and the ultimate Machiavellian trick of Love me not because of what I say, but because of the secret interpretation that you know is true of what I'm really doing, because you know that I'm manipulative and lying and whatever, is that way you feel like you've been drawn into a conspiracy. You are in on the secret, that this is what he's really up to, the long game. He might look That's like he's being nice. He's, he's cheersing, Ramaphosa's cheersing Jacob Zuma with a champagne glass. I saw that. I was like, this is going to sink the guy. How can... You know, this, put this on the cover of the newspaper. It is. Surely the people are going to see this. People who don't like Zuma are going to see that Ramaphosa is kissing up to Zuma. This is not good. No. People see that and they see through it. Like Lermontov. They're so clever. They're like, he is just pretending. And he's not really Zuma's friend. He's my friend. And he doesn't even have to call me for me to know it. I can tell he's my friend because of all the lies he tells to all the other people. Ah. Uh. I must say, I, I, I agree with that analysis completely, but I do get a bit tired because sometimes you can't save people from themselves. But anyway, um, we are very late now uh, over time. So do you have any recommendations? Um, yeah, man, a hero of our time. Okay, but that's a long book and it's been a long time since I really read it. So uh, <laughs> you, you, you come up with one. Otherwise, I'm going to just talk about flowers and bougainvilleas on the garden on the patio again and i think i already made my spring recommendation of getting flowers in your house so <laughs> i need a better one yeah um hmm. you know what i'm gonna recommend i'm gonna recommend something weird um, i've recommended a video game before i'm going to recommend a facebook page uh, world war one colorized photos uh it's a facebook group you can join and it's great um <laughs> it's just w exactly what it says on the tin right Photos from the First World War that someone has redone up with color to make them come alive. And mm. it's just really, you know, that that conflict. Uh, we often forget that there are a lot of really good photos of it because, of course, you know, the technology wasn't great at the time. And most of the photos look like garbage because of this sort of primitive black and white cameras. But when the photos are recolorized, um, they can look 
pretty spectacular. It makes the whole era come alive in a way that, uh, uh, you know, people, I think, um, are not always aware of. Uh, and connected to this, Peter Jackson's great, great documentary. Um, uh, what What is it called now? Sorry, I just need to find the name of it. I'll find the name of it while you uh, you give your recommendation. While I go. My favorite World War One short story is called, I think, A Second Christmas by Robert Graves. Uh, everyone knows the story, the first Christmas in World War One. Uh, ah, sorry, it's called, yeah. the, the Peter Jackson one is called They Shall Not Grow Old. Really, really good documentary. Hmm. The, the, first, the first Christmas, the pe people sort of drop their weapons and go and play soccer in no man's land. The second Christmas, uh, the instruction comes, you're not allowed to do that, no fraternizing with the enemy. Uh, but some people go ahead and do it anyway. Robert Graves is in the trenches, uh, becomes the UK sort of great World War One poet or one of them. Uh, and later on, he writes this story about what it was like, and uh, and how bitter the how bitterly that day ended. Um, it's quite sour, actually. Um, but my recommendation, just because it's next to me, and I just reread a chapter from it, I might have recommended this before. Um, one of my favorite books of the lockdown, The Poincaré Conjecture by Donald O'Shea. Um, it's a really readable book about the 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 Poincaré Conjecture, which is the only millennial prize. Sort of, you, you, they're these sort of eight maths problems where if you can solve any one of them, you win a million dollars, and only one of them have been solved. Uh, it was sold by Pierlman, this crazy Russian dude who lives with his mom and turned down the <laughs> money and looks, I guess, a little bit like me, but is super smart. Weirded, uh, <laughs> weirdo. Um, but, but part of what's... Yeah, well, are you sure you're not just describing yourself there? No, no, I don't live with my mom. You don't live with, with your mom, mom, I suppose that's... I live yeah, with yeah. my friend's mom. <laughs> um, who's a really great lady. Uh, they've had such an exciting week. Um, but so I think part of why I'm recommending this book this time is that uh, there there are these series of, of breakthroughs in maths uh, which which go from thinking about geometry in flat space, you know, triangles and squares and, 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 and three-dimensional flat space to thinking about curved space uh, and curve space really is as simple as like what it's like to try and draw a triangle between London and, and New York and Sao Paulo. Like it's not going to come out like a flat triangle. It's going to be a different kind of shape. And there's a geometry, uh, a set of geometrical assumptions. You need to understand that. And as it turns out, the universe, this, this kind of non-Euclidean geometry, this non-flat geometry, uh, doesn't just describe the surfaces of of planets, it actually describes the closest thing to a straight line that there is in the universe. In other words, our universe is made out of curved space-time. Uh, so we had to develop this geometry first uh, through Euler and Riemann and uh, Gauss to some extent uh, before we could come up with the sort of famous theorems of general and special relativity and quantum mechanics, but especially general relativity. Um, so that's kind of interesting, but but where it lines up with politics is the same thought that if you're just looking at points, little data points, the, the curves that can run through them 
are underdetermined by the points. In other words, the same set of points, you could have different lines that run through them. And, and that becomes meaningful. Those differences can seem silly. Like if you've kind of got five points in a row, okay, you can have a straight line that goes through them forever, or you can have like a curly line that becomes straight when it goes through the five points and then it becomes curly again. Seems like you're just adding the curly bits at the end. The line that really fits is the straight one. But when you realize that those points might be in a curved geometry, then you really have a tough job of, of deciding which line is the best fit curve. So in a flat geometry, it can be quite easy to find a best fit curve. But in a curved geometry, it can be impossible. And in a sense, what you have to do is find a best fit in one geometry in one sense of curved space, and then find a, a best fit in another sense of curved space. And that turns out to be the kind of thing that mathematicians and physicists do a lot. It's practical. It even is the kind of thing that sometimes happens with uh, rocket science in a practical engineering sense. Um, and I think when we navigate social space or moral space especially, and we're judging each other's actions based on the facts, I think it's good to remember this this mathematical metaphor so that when you're really confident that you've got the right interpretation you at least check in on other curves that fit the da same data points and then check out whether the framework that makes that best fit is is a is a reasonable framework and is something that also deserves the merit of affirmation or has the merits of affirmation or whether that framework is is so designed as to debunk itself. And, and the shortcut is, you know, if a framework that's giving you a best fit curve turns out to be us good, them bad, um, then you've got a good sense that that curve is, is, is not going to be a good best fit, that, that that's the kind of thing you should dismiss. So it's on the one hand good for, and, and there's a good mathematical analog for the kinds of frameworks that don't work. And, and it's, they produce unboundable um, absurdities. Uh, Whereas the good frameworks have absurdities, but you can bound them. Okay, so I'm, you know, basically there's just this mathematical equivalent to the common sense idea that you should keep an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. <laughs> that's very good advice. Okay, so, but if you think that's rubbish, then you should read the Poincaré conjecture and, you, and feel free to tell me that I'm stretching the metaphor. <laughs> but read it first, because it's really good work. <laughs> All right, and with that, okay. uh, we we beg you to keep the flag of liberty flying high. <laughs>